Life is full of personal wins. Whether it's cleaning your house, getting that dream car, or checking off your to-do list, winning at life is a great feeling. And with the State Farm Personal Price Plan, you can keep winning when you create an affordable price just for you by bundling home and auto. So give yourself a round of applause. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to Squarespace.com and use the code NERDIST. That makes a lot of sense. Now entering Nerdist.com. We're recording. All right. Okay. <clears throat> awesome. Thanks. Thank yeah. you. We're <laughs> sure. we're on. This is it. There's no there's no real official. We're on. There's no real official signal to the beginning of the show. So no. these, these uh, days there's no official anything. I'm gonna go into airplane mode. Not like I get any service in here. <clears throat> but uh, um, this is a pretty amazing screening room that we're in. Do yeah. You, do you get do you have actual prints of movies that you watch in here? No. Oh my gosh. When I bought this house um there was a really expensive uh <laughs> like a projector or whatever whatever movie star was living here felt the need for a very expensive one i did not it was offered to me with the house i think it was like an, another million dollars which i <laughs> promptly turned down and bought something at radio check yeah i'll just uh we have digital technology <clears throat> yeah now, so i mean it was something. not even uh under consideration yeah, I use this much less frequently than I should, but uh, it's always on my uh, to-do list for New Year's Eve resolutions to use the screening room more. Oh, the problems I have, Chris. <laughs> the problems I have. I always loved. I always loved to like talk about luxury problems with friends. Like, I literally, yeah. I don't have enough pockets to put all this money in them. I don't know what. <laughs> Hey, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I earned every penny of it. <laughs> I came up the hard way. <laughs> I was born on the mean streets. So All right, not the mean streets, but the circular driveways. The, and and uh, when you know, while, uh, no, I while, was very poor, I had very poor years. I mean, I literally lived in slums for ten years. Was, so there, was people. While you were doing stand up, well, um, <clears throat> college, I would consider. I consider living where I lived in college town, as they called it. Mm -hmm. uh, also, the dorm first year at Cornell was. Um, housing that was built in 1945 that was temporary it was still there 35 years later <laughs> um that was sort of a slum and then yeah uh yes then when i moved to new york starting stand-up those were definitely slums spanish harlem uh, hell's kitchen um so there was no screening room in hell's there kitchen was no you're saying? screening room no okay. there was plenty of roaches <laughs> <laughs> there was a screaming room where people would just beat yeah. the shit out of you for no reason. Oh, yeah. There was very often like a bum passed out in the, I call it the foyer. <laughs> you know, that that little very tiny space where you walked in the door and got your mail at those metal that, boxes. That, I think that's technically the room that's easier to get robbed in. Right. I, you know, I was never a defender of New York. <laughs> Let me put it that way. When did you, uh, when did you start? I mean, because I, I've, I mean, I know your stand up. I've known your stand-up since forever, but I don't know exactly when you started. I started in the year of our Lord, 1979, uh, yes. fresh out of Cornell, just at the beginning, or maybe as the wave was building almost to a crest of the comedy boom, mm -hmm. um, an era limbed, I think, <laughs> rather amusingly in my novel, True Story, available from 
Oh, God, it was so long ago. Who did put that out? Simon & Schuster? I don't know. Look it up on the internet. Well, they're still around. Fortunately, they're still around. They haven't but been gobbled yes, up I, yet. I wrote one novel in my life because, you know, they say write what you know about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's always uh, the case that novelists rewrite the same novel basically over and over again. There's a few, I guess, who, who have defied that. But a lot of them do that. So I would never write another one. But I did write one about that period in my life, the, my first year in comedy. I thought that was the, you know, the pivotal moment in your life. Right. You know, it's sort of that moment in the experiment when you're going to go on to either make a new compound or not make anything. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, a trial. So so what was it, uh, what was it about, I mean... I always just assume, like, well, if you're going to do stand-up, it's just some genetic thing that you have a predisposition to it, and, I agree. and you have to do it, and, <clears throat> you know, no matter no matter how disconcerting it can be and how many, you know, two-people audiences you perform for, there's something in you that forces you to get up and keep doing it. Absolutely. I, I mean, that, that's one of the themes of that uh, novel in the beginning, is that the character, you know, it's, it's a novelization, but that part was certainly me feels um frustrated that he is um that he was born to do it i knew i wanted to do it when i was a little kid but now the field was crowded with so many idiots and amateurs uh, you know dentists were like moonlighting trying to be comics right right, right. You know, there was an explosion of it and i i seem to remember likening it to the beginning of a marathon where the real runners had to put up with the, oh, yeah. you know, I'm talking about the city marathons, not the Olympics, but, right. you know, where, like, there's thousands of boneheads who are not going to run the full 26 miles, <laughs> right. but who are going to clog up the first few miles. And that's what I felt like at the beginning of uh, of my comedy life. It was a snobby way to look at it, but turned out I was right. Right. Well, <laughs> turned yeah. out I was right. I mean, I- I've run the first... The full- 26 miles and there were a lot a couple of times and there were times. a lot of dentists clogging the way well yeah you know i feel like i feel like i've had this conversation with uh with comics in la before where they'll go like eh, these fucking actors you know they think stand-ups are so easy and they'll try it and i'm like let them because they're not going to keep doing it because it is not rewarding for i mean like it's only as rewarding mm, as that's true i got up again and did it and i need you know but not in the sense it's, of right it, it was semi at first it was just miserable and horrible of course just the worst sort of thing in the world. Then after you, you know, you can at least get laughs for 20 minutes, it becomes, for me anyway, you know, sometimes uh, elating and wonderful and a lot of times frustrating. And then, and then for many years, it's, it's, you know, you can at least make a living, but it can be a real grind. I mean, when you're working, you know, I remember those gigs, you know, where you'd work four or five days in a town, Mm -hmm. you know, you'd be in Columbia, South Carolina for like, you know, Wednesday through Sunday. Oh yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, I'm I'm doing that, that now. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> oh, sorry. <I> <laughs> oh, no, that's okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're right. It's, I mean that 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 was uh, difficult, but uh, you know. And then finally, if you stick with it, uh, at least in my case, I've found like the last ten years have been just pure joy. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I mean, but it takes a that that's a long time. I mean, that's twenty years before it got to be pure joy. And that's and the only way that you can maintain that for twenty years is if you if you're weirdly obsessive about it and you have you have to do it right because at least now if you're in like Columbia South Carolina every town has some sort of a hive that is the you know the franchise mini mall but I imagine in like 1970 or 80 you know ah, there's not a Borders and a Starbucks and a fucking you know uh, whatever the uh, Applebee's or whatever so what what do you do what do you do in those towns at, the, at that point. You read the paper, you know, I mean, <clears throat> Jay, I seem to remember having a routine about that, you know, about, I seem to remember him on Letterman, like, in the early 80s, or maybe it was in his act, probably both, he had a routine about, yeah, you're on the road, uh, you know, you're one of those uh, <laughs> motels with the cars, you, bring, you open the door, you, you know, here right outside your door, and, uh, you know, you, you have time to kill, you read the whole paper, <laughs> You know, you're there like, oh, look at that, uh, tuna casserole with a graham cracker crust. (laughs) (laughs) Jay Jay was funny. Jay is funny. Jay was always, like, had the best pure, like, act, act, you know, in those days. I think, I think, I feel like that's one of the reasons why, I mean, he doesn't, I mean, you know, like, when you really look at the big picture, he doesn't get a lot of shit because the majority of America doesn't care about that stuff. 
But I feel like I feel he's gotten a lot of shit. Lately. He does get a lot of shit lately, and I feel like it's <clears> you know there's a lot of comics. There's a lot of people who, you know, when he was doing comedy in the 70s and 80s was like, oh my god. Like, he was so fucking fast and sharp and just Jay still is. He just is. He just is doing... <clears throat> I mean, I still think his monologue is um, the best one uh, at that hour. And I also think that uh, during the writer's strike, I was amazed that he went on... Un- <laughs> it seemed like there was no... Uh, interruption at all i mean he single-handedly wrote the entire monologue I just, every night I, which... I i think i think somehow his his uh his heart is governed by the plot of speed and if he slows down under 55 miles an hour oh, he yeah. will die yeah jay's a jay's a workaholic i mean he i remember way a million years ago back in the day him saying uh, bragging i remember standing at the improv with a few comics and he was bragging that he had an agent who would get him a job every day he wanted to work, which was, of course, every day. Right. He didn't care about routing. You know, be like, <laughs> yeah, I'm in uh, Puerto Rico, and then I'm in Portland, uh, Oregon, and then I'm, <laughs> I'm back to Portland, Maine, and uh, then I go to Phoenix. It was terrible. He didn't care. He just wanted to get up and tell jokes every night. Did you have that, or was it for you? I mean, God no. What was your? You know, when you're starting <laughs> Still comedy, don't. when you when you're starting comedy in seventy nine or eighty, is there is there a is there a big picture goal, or is it just I feel like I need to perform? And I'm well, there was doing when it. it, but it changed. I mean, before I started, I wanted to be Johnny Carson when I was a kid. Then when I started doing it and hung around at the clubs and talked with the other comics, and I guess it was also what was going on in the era at the time. The goal was to. You know, there was an absolute template. I remember talking about it with Jerry Seinfeld and Paul Reiser, and but you know, we all agreed. You get, you know, you 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 stay here in New York, building up at least six clean Tonight Show <laughs> TV shots, friendly like, minutes, absolutely, so that when you get when you get the call, you have, you know, you can, you don't want to like do one or two and then, oh, here's a great new comedian. Oh, and now you're out of material. Right. Good clean stuff. You know, which I had trouble with because I wasn't interested in, like, <laughs> trivial shit. Um, and then you get a sitcom. And that kind of worked out for me. I mean, I went out to... I mean, I did... I was only doing it, like, three and a half years when I was on The Tonight Show. I did three quick shots. Um, moved out to California. Um I did get a, you know, I got a movie right away. Then I did get a sitcom. And then, another, you know, I was on that path. Um so for for most of the eighties, my goal had shifted from being Johnny Carson to then being um, an actor because I was making my living a lot. You know, most of my big paychecks, <laughs> big well, well, you know, enough to live on, came from you know, well, sitcom money was amazing compared to what we were making at you know the comedy hut, right? Um, but you know, I, that at the, by the end of the decade. I, I was not. I had done a few of them. It was not interesting anymore. And then I was at a period like around the beginning of the '90s where I was really lost because I didn't want to do that, and I didn't have anything new starting, and I didn't didn't know really if I was going to be one of the people who was like left on the side of the road. I thought, oh gosh, huh? I'm one of those people in the marathon. <laughs> Somebody else is running over me. Uh, did Bill Maher end up being one of those people left on the side of the road? Did he ever work again? We'll find out in 30 seconds, right after we pause to make some money so I can buy Matt and Jonah a sandwich, even though they were not on this episode. Which, by the way, is brought to you by Squarespace.com. It is the fast and easy way to create and manage a high-quality website and or blog. Whether you're a beginner or an expert, Squarespace.com has what you need. A photo gallery, you got form builders, Google Maps, permission access handling, and more. There are hundreds of design templates to choose from, and you can customize any of the designs. Use Squarespace for all of your website needs. Build it, host it, and manage it. For a free trial, go to squarespace.com. There is no credit card needed. Just in case you were wondering, you try it out and you build your website. Then if you decide to purchase it, get 10% off when you enter the offer code NERDIST. How did they come up with that? That is all. When we left off, Bill was worried he might never work again. What happened next? Transition. 
And then, uh, luckily, I was able to pitch uh, um, Politically Incorrect in 92. And then, <clears throat> I mean, that's what I really should have always been doing. I wasn't old enough to do it, but that was, you know, that was kind of a Johnny Carson thing, but to me, better, because it was Johnny Carson talking about something instead of interviewing, right. you know, third the third lead on bringing up Chunky, which, right, right. Know, if I had to do that, I'd blow my brains out. Well, yeah, and when you look back, that sort of, that format, I mean, even though it still exists today, I mean, it's it's a relatively antiquated format as far as television is concerned, where you go on and pretend you know so it's one of the reasons why i love ferguson so much <laughs> yeah. like he just talks to you he just chat right. he just chats with you like right. a human being right and um you know there's so much of the <clears throat> what was it like working on this thing it was fantastic terrific rimshot commercial yeah the old um johnny used to say it all the time and i guess they still do but Somebody told somebody told me. Yes, yeah, somebody the booking producer told you. What do you mean the, per, the person who did the pre-interview? You know, we never really saw through that. I heard. Mm, where did you, know, you hear? There's no internet know. yet. Where did you hear yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but John, that was Johnny's big one. Yeah. So, somebody told me that you uh, collect toy trains. <laughs> what was he like off the? Like, did you? Was, was he a guy you could hang out with off stage? I or was never he hung just... out with him off. I mean, I, I mean, I never hung out with outside of the building. But I saw him sometimes. Um, before the show, you know, just briefly, like I was standing in the wings and he was coming down. I remember once standing back there when Ed was doing his warm up and Johnny was like, God, this can't this guy get some new material? Oh, I have been listening to the same old crap for a time and how many years? You know, he was. He was, you know, being sort of winky funny about it, but there was also some lot of literal frustration, like, Jesus Christ, could this guy get a new joke for the warm-up? Um, and, uh, but he was, you know, that's as far as I ever... Uh, and sometimes uh, right after the show, you know, I was leaving while he was leaving. We'd, we'd, like, be walking out to the parking lot together. I mean, but that was the extent of it. But he was always gracious in every moment, those moments or the ones... Um, on the air. Um, I remember once I was walking out, this near the end, maybe the last time I did it, when Jay was um, tapped to be the successor. Mm -hmm. And he got it, Johnny got in his car, some sports car, and it wouldn't start. And and people were sort of like gathering around. And he, <laughs> and I said to him, boy, Jay Leno, you know, he's a car nut. I bet you he'd, he, he'd know how to start the car. And Johnny looked up and he went, well, you know, we're going to see how much he knows about television. <laughs> Oh, shit. Damn. <laughs> now, there's a guy that I always wanted to just meet or, or you know, or do the show. I mean, I was too, you know, I was too kind of, I was old enough to do it, but I wasn't doing anything that would have gotten me on the show. Yeah. Because there just isn't really a, I mean, I'm trying to think of who is, I mean, he, there are super famous people on television, but he was the fucking juggernaut. Like, if you were on his show, it changed your life. That's not true. You don't think so? Didn't change mine. I was on 30 times with Johnny. Um, that's a myth that, I don't know where that started, probably with Johnny, publicity people. <laughs> I mean, there was a time way, way back, way before my time, maybe when I was a kid, when if you did The Tonight Show, uh, a comedian was such a rare thing that it was sort of an event. But by the time I was doing it in the 80s, there was, there was a new comedian every week. It didn't make... All it did was make you viable in within show business to get some other job. You know, if you had done a few Tonight Shows, like I got the part in DC Cab because the guy saw me on the, the director, Joel Schumacher, who I still love. I just read something about him. He's got a new picture out. He, he, he saw me on The Tonight Show. Um, or, you know, casting people would watch it. Mm -hmm. But it didn't make you famous. Well, that makes me feel better. And it better. didn't make you a star, certainly. I think the last person who was who became, like, a star um, just from doing stand-up and appearances like that was maybe David Brenner. Mm -hmm. And he started in the late 60s. Actually, now that I think about it, in in uh, Steve Martin's book, Born Standing Up, he said, like, oh, yeah, I did uh, I did The Tonight Show like 15 times before anyone had any idea. Absolutely, yeah. I think I got that, I, I think, because I had Drew Carey on a few months ago, and he was like, I went on the show on a Friday, and on a Monday, my life was changed. Like, he said he because had it. Maybe because he got a sitcom. Okay. You know, I mean, that happened. I mean, there was that era also, which maybe is still going on, to a degree when comedians would 
would uh, do their act, and then somebody would create, maybe them with somebody, a sitcom based on what their act was. Mm-hmm. Ray Romano, yep. Roseanne, you know, that was the kind of Jack Gary Shandling. That was sort of the template for a while, was we build a sitcom around what your act is. So in that sense, it could change your life, but it didn't change your life like... You know, you did the Tonight Show on Friday, and then Monday, everybody was like, "Boy, oh, there he is! There's the guy!" We all, come on, right? That is interesting, though, because in the in the late '90s, after you know, after the wave of comedians getting sitcoms, the networks were handing out deals to anyone with five minutes, like sure. anyone with five minutes right. of material, and then right. Oh, but you only have five minutes. So then, what? You know, so all these people are moving out to L.A. and just doing just doing their five minute set, and right. uh, and then of course. Well, we don't really have an act, so what do what right. do you build around that? Does not this that does not happen anymore? By the way, that's yeah. over. I mean, Roseanne was probably or Ray Romano. That was probably the most successful ones. They had acts that really lent themselves to a sitcom. You know, I'm the put upon housewife, or I'm the put upon husband, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Whatever. I don't know. Would you be happy doing a sitcom now? Or is that a- <laughs> oh my God, no. Are you serious? <laughs> I was happy doing it, uh, you know, when I first got one. It was thrilling. I was 28, I yeah. think. I was doing a part they wrote for someone who was 40, but I just was funnier than the other people in the auditions. I was really a good auditioner, especially if it was a comedy part where you could, like, help out with the writing. I mean, that was a... I remember the first day I overheard this actress who was playing like the secretary and she was like in her 50s or I don't know, maybe she was 35, but to me she seemed like she was in her 50s at the time. And I remember overhearing her say, they've hired a comedian. Oh, like it's a bad thing? (laughs) Yeah, like, the you know, Irish and comedians need not apply, you know, like, yeah, like they've hired a, like, oh, there's going to be havoc on the set. Uh, Robin Williams was another one who had an act, and then they made it into Mork. Right. You know, um, so, yeah, that's what we all wanted to do was, I think Robin Williams was more than anyone else, because that show went on, I think, in 78 or 79. That, more than anyone else, made us comics in that era think of that idea of, oh, okay, go out to the West Coast with your material and get a sitcom you know, yeah. after you do the Tonight Show four times. Right, right, right. Did you, uh, when did you kind of make the, because I, I remember your stand-up from the 80s, and I remember that it, I remember one joke in particular about, uh, he was like a, a New York cop at the Crucifixion. Yes, that was a was joke like, I used to open my act with. Right, show's over. That's, show's over. Yeah. And so I feel like there was, I, I remember, I remember when I look back now, I remember like, yeah, there were definitely some jabs at politics and religion and that sort of thing, but it wasn't. Right. No, it wasn't. You, your act. No. I don't remember as being overly, you know, political in any way. So it, how did that transition was, happen? It was political, but it was less so, and it was probably less sophisticated because I was. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was. It was never about. Um, even though I tried, <laughs> because you know you wanted those, you know, six clean Tonight <laughs> shows all ready to go. I tried manfully to create material based. You know, like Jerry Seinfeld's act. I mean, Jerry is brilliant at making nothing interesting or making trivial things mm-hmm. interesting. I mean, I have always loved his act and to this day do love his act. And uh, I think over the years, actually, it's gotten a little... Now that he's married, I think it's gotten a little more um, substantial. But, you know, it used to be famous for being about the socks and the dryer and those right. kind of bits. Um and I think we all wanted to do that because that was the easiest to get on TV, you know. But it was just never what really interested me. I was interested in weightier subjects, but I wasn't old enough to treat them properly, mm-hmm. I think is the best way to put it. So, you know, I kind of grew into the kind of material I should always have been doing. Well, I don't think the 80s could have... I don't, I don't remember the 80s comedy as being that tolerant of weightier stuff. It it it's, It seemed... All the stuff that I remember seeing on television, like, none of it was really... None of it was really, like, challenging in the sense of, uh, you know, like, making any grand statements. A lot of it was just sort of fun and, you know, and silly. and Like goofy. the era itself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Actually, that's... Yeah. Exactly. So how does the idea for Politically Correct uh, and Correct come along? Like, what do you... Why do you, why do you decide to pitch You know, I had that idea for a long time to do... I, I guess I was a fan as a kid of shows. There were these, like... I think there were more local New York shows, like uh, David Susskind... 
um, was one, and I think there was another guy named Alan Burke, something Burke. Anyway, they had like these discussion shows with a panel. It was like usually on like Channel Nine in New York or something. It was kind of a dark set, and, <laughs> um, and David Susskind certainly was. I mean, he wasn't a funny guy. He wasn't a comedian, but he did like I remember he did this very famous show with it was like theme shows and one of them was like what's it like to be a Jewish son he had on like Mel Brooks and David Steinberg and like three other Jews <laughs> and, and of course Mel Brooks was hysterical and it was like yeah, a really funny a very adult kind of show you know um, and I, I think that's where I, I was trying to bring that into the uh, 90s um, so I the first time I ever really did that was in the summer of 1990, CBS offered eight different people one week each in the late night time slot. They must not have had a late night show then, or oh, I don't think they did. I think that was a big deal when Letterman. Yeah, that was like '93. Yeah. He came over, so they didn't. So I guess they were trying stuff out or whatever. But uh, you know, and you could do whatever you wanted in that week. And that's what I did. I did kind of a prototype of politically incorrect kind of theme shows with a with a panel, all mm -hmm. you know, all the people on at once. I think that's what I did. Um, and uh, but yeah, I mean, it was just good timing that Comedy Central needed some programming at the moment that I was ready to do that show. I I did the show. I don't know how many times, but it was a lot and. You were the, actually the only person that right. would ever have me on any kind of <laughs> late night show. Yeah, you were good. It was fun. I yeah. appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I think. Yeah, we used people who were good it, and didn't who were bad. What a theory! It was an it was an interesting, uh, it, I, and I don't remember I don't remember any crazy crazy um, stories, but I do remember who was it? It was like uh, Nadine Strassen and oh yeah and like tucker carlson or like basically like two people that sure that you want to see in a cage together right and that was one of those ones Yeah, there was a lot of that which is one reason why i think it was harder to to get you know a lot of celebrities to do it because who wants to be like in the you know sitting there while these two sort of political pros go at each other then right. you kind of look like you know, an idiot at a cockfight or something. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, four people every night for five nights a week, 46 weeks a year, that is a lot of guests. And were you ever, uh, was the, is there, is there ever a point, there must have been some point where you're like, oh, fuck, well, I don't know if I have an answer. I mean, you know, because people come in armed to the teeth with whatever their point is, right? Yeah, I mean, those kind of people do. I mean, you know, those kind of people weren't always on, um, I mean, there was. I mean, it was, it was an interesting idea. How it lasted for nine years and six uh, on ABC, which was owned by Disney. I have no idea. Um, you know, people say to me about uh, to this day, they'll say, you know, "Gee, so sorry you got fired off ABC," <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm like, wow. You must really not have cable. Um, <laughs> and I always, you know, think, God, I'm not. I mean, I should have pulled the plug on it a long time before that. Maybe not a long time, but I think it had run its course. And there was no way it was ever going to, that format was ever going to um, be a more serious, well-considered show. It was always a little bit of a train wreck by design. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, just four different people from, you know, from the high brow to the low mixed together. Yes, that was an interesting concept. It almost reminded me of that old saying about relationships. You know, opposites attract. They don't work. Right. Right. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. You know, My mom always it, it says was, that. It was, a, it was an interesting concept. It attracted, but it didn't always work in that sense, you know. And then there were nights when... You know, I, I'm, I, even though there were four people there, none of them had very much to say, and I would, like, you know, pretty much do the whole show myself. It was mm -hmm. only, you know, a half-hour show with commercials, only 22 minutes, minus monologue. I mean, there, that's that's not much airtime for five people. That's true, but I, I, I remember, you know, and it's this this kind of, this began to dissipate as I went on more often, but I, the, the first couple of times I went on, I, there was just that fear of, like, 
I'm going to look like an idiot. Like, I'm going to say something and then someone's going to be like, that's what you're saying is wrong and here's 50 reasons why. And then I'd be like, yeah. But uh, but it ne- that never happened. But but I can understand why people would come on a little gun shy, you know, because they don't want to get fucking blasted in the face. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad it it ended. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I'm glad it happened, and I'm glad it ended. And I wish I wish I'd had the guts to try to transition to the show I'm doing now a little sooner. But you know, you know, everything happens for the for a reason. I always say. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. No, maybe. I don't. That's bullshit. That is <laughs> things. Not everything happens for a reason. Don't believe that. Life is random, <laughs> coincidental, absolutely and random. I love that you used to do on the Comedy okay. Central version of the show. You would do the cleaning out the notebooks at the end of the show. Oh my god, which... that was the very first season. That's right. Me and Bill Sheft would do cleaning out our notebooks. Oh god, of just jokes that you never, yes, you never just... fully developed, <laughs> right? And stuff that never worked. And <laughs> do we just make each other laugh? Yeah, 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 yeah. I forgot that that really was a, a, a I really loved doing that and I yeah. think I think I actually heard you say something to the effect one time of you like you put out a joke and then you were like that's why I never developed that further like, yeah, it's it's just, so it was just I think they were uh, not always yeah some of it was undeveloped but I think some of it was just stuff that audiences never got but we got how you important know, very... how, how important is it to you to like if you have a bit that you were convinced I don't give a fuck what the audience thinks. I know this is funny. Do you keep doing it, or how much do you kind of pull back based on what the audience thinks? Uh, um, definitely, I mean, if they're not laughing, it's just no fun. You know, you have to pull back. I mean, that's just, just stupid to, like, insist that people find something funny that they don't, that only you do. But sometimes you will, you know, over time, find a way to make it funny. Mm-hmm. You know, you will. sometimes there's a flaw in the joke design, and sometimes it's just a concept that you know tickles you and doesn't tickle other people, and there and that's a place for it. That's why that's why we have notebooks to clean out. <laughs> I almost wonder sometimes <clears throat> if something is too funny to me, if it's just too inside my own head, and that's why no one else. It will may get be. It. That's why no one else. It will may get absolutely it. be. Yeah. How do you how do you work out new stuff now? I mean, you obviously it's not like you can. Yeah, I'll go to this workout room and just try a bunch of new stuff. Like, and obviously since everyone knows who you are, how do you do it? Yeah, I mean. Uh, I can do that, but I don't know. I know this is <clears throat> sacrilege to say as a comedian, and I know lots of very experienced comedians would definitely argue with me. But I've been doing this so long that I really honestly don't have to try it out. I just kind of know when I'm writing it if it's going to work or not. Um, so uh, I guess I guess that's too bad for you, comedians who are... <laughs> <laughs> still working out. I, I just have a. I mean, I just say that because I've done it so many times in the last ten years or so. Um, I just have a, you know, it's just repetition of doing this so many zillions of times. I just feel what they're going to laugh at. Of course, I'm always working. <clears throat> maybe it's also because I'm always working in this era mm-hmm. for only my fans. So there's not like people in the audience who aren't on my wavelength to begin with. Right, right, you right. Know, I, I kind of feel like I'm in a room full of friends. Right. You know, and when I'm on the road, I am. I mean, that's the only people who come to your show and are going to pay a hard ticket price are people who really like what you do. You don't have to, like, explain yourself. Right. That's one of the great things about, about sticking with it this long. Um, and so... You know, I feel like we're already right there, so it's not that hard. Well, at what point did you kind of realize, you know, where you sort of looked out at the crowd and realized, like, oh, actually, all these people are here to see me. This isn't just, let's go out and see comedy tonight. that's very evident when that happens. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, Bob Hope said once that there are three elements to comedy. Timing, which, of course, you have to be born with. You can't teach that. Mm -hmm. Um, Material, which you gather over time. And recognition. And uh, recognition is the final and fun piece that puts gets put into place because when you when you get that <clears throat> you you don't have to explain yourself or or win them over. I mean, I certainly paid my dues, you know, all those years at the Chuckle Hut, right? You know, winning them over because they don't know who you are. You're just generic comedian. You don't have fans. You're just a guy at the comedy club. 
and people went to the comedy club. Mm-hmm. And they may have seen Gallagher last week, and now you're a big disappointment because you're not doing that. <laughs> right. And so, you know, you're, all, you're, you're performing to a cross-section of people, uh, only a sliver of which might be your natural fans. Right. It's a really difficult way to do comedy. I mean, you know, you wouldn't think of doing music like that. People wouldn't just go to a club to see generic music right and then you know it's it's jazz and people who hate jazz have to sit through the it. fuck is this shit well right. it's the music you know you... it's heavy metal and right you know most people don't want to see i mean comedy is as different as different as different genres of music i agree I, but most but, people most people just don't understand it that no, way but so it's a it's a horrible thing to have to go i always hated that was i absolutely resented <laughs> having to win people over and, right. and convince them I was good. And, you know, I did it when I had to, I guess, when something was on the line. I think I also back then had a bad attitude many nights. I certainly, when I was still in New York, you know, had my share of getting booed off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> really, some tough nights. I, I just did the Just for Last Festival in um, Toronto, Montreal. and then I remember doing it. And what was kind of interesting about it is, I mean, they literally bring in comics from all over the world. So you have, you have comics that you've never heard of, but in their own countries are like fucking rock stars. But here they are performing right. for you know a right. uh, hundred people, and they don't know who that person is, and it kind of puts them back in that. Right. Ah, they, these people don't know who you are, and it was it was really. I mean, they did they did fine, but it was still it was an interesting challenge. We don't go past. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, one forty four. Okay. So it was just an interesting challenge to watch to watch that, but I always feel like, yeah, that's the ultimate goal is when people can actually are coming out to see you. That's when you know you've made it as a comic, and it's when it's fun. Yeah, that's that's when you know you've made it when you're enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> so at the beginning of real time, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I I think for the pilot episode, I think I did. St- stand up on the show for the, your pilot episode and there was more of a there was more um of like other comics there was an element right. to it because paul of tompkins mm-hmm. was on the show and then you right. were going to have comics and there then was that, that well changed. we did we had a yes the first very first season in 2003 um the format of the show was slightly different we didn't do the end that we do now which is me doing an editorial mm-hmm. um we had at the end of the show we did like a new sort of like I wanted to bring on and show because I thought this was HBO perfect place for it I wanted to show to the American public the comics who were doing the really hip stuff mm-hmm. like there was that um, Largo or, yeah Largo yeah yeah that Still place uh, Luna Park Luna was Park the other one yep. this was like where you went with your notebook almost you know it was like this isn't the shit that the regular crowd at right. the improv this is you know for only us hip people so I remember the first, very first show, Sarah Silverman was the comedian at the end. But we had, every week we had a, a comedy act like that. Bob mm-hmm. Odenkirk, you know, really the the funny, hip, um, I sound like Johnny Carton, the, the funny, funny <laughs> young man. Um, no, I know what you and mean, though. Tom, Paul Tompkins, right, who I'm still a big fan of. He did a little thing in the middle of the show. But the feedback from the audience was like, Bill, we, we watched this to watch you. <laughs> right. bringing on a comic at the end what do you have to and they were right it was it was not the right thing so we ditched it after 10 episodes but that's true of almost any television show you see the first shows and they, they have to find what they're doing wrong yeah well the first two seasons of the Simpsons are not what the Simpsons ended up becoming they well, were like squiggly drawings right. it's almost yeah. every family guy you know yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. look different and but I mean even uh, if you look at pilots of uh, very often they fire someone who's in the pilot on a sitcom. Oh yeah, you know I, I'm, I think every sitcom series I ever did, they fired someone who I we worked with the pilot. I did a show called Sarah, the first sitcom I ever did, and they fired Sarah. <laughs> they fired the titular <laughs> character, and we when we reshot it in a day with Gina Davis. Now that's and that's 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 why that's one of the reasons why this business is you know I mean obviously we choose to be in it, but. It takes forever before you actually start to feel like, okay, I feel like I'm secure because you might not get the job. But then if you get it, they might not. You might get fired. Then they might not pick it up. Then they might replace you anyway after a season. Then you know, like you, you just you never ever there's, ever. No, there's no 
security, I always say, which is sort of ridiculous because I've been doing politically incorrect and real time with only a, there's only a six month break between one going off and the other going on for 18 years. Wow. <laughs> so, so that's, that's as, about as much security as you'll ever get in show business. But, you know, it's not secure in the sense that I was given an 18-year contract in 1993. Right. It's secure in the sense that when you look back at it, every single year I had to sweat it out and wait till whoever was making the decision said, okay, we'll pick you up for another year again. Because they want to keep you insecure. Right. They don't want to make you feel like, oh, well, you got it in the bag. <laughs> they want to make it so that you walk out of the office thinking, whew. They picked us up. Yeah. Well, so your agent doesn't go in there and, like, fuck them up and get, you know, like... And right. Get any, they don't want you to have any power. Right. That's why you fucking deserve a screening room. That's right. <laughs> 18 That's, years. Damn it. Um, how do you feel in terms of... Is it safe for you to go out? Because some of the groups that take offense at some of the stuff are a little on the fanatical side. So, is it... You can't ever worry about it. I mean, you know... Um... Yeah, there are people who hate you, but I tell you, the people who hate you almost never make themselves known. I mean, I know they're out there. I know I'm a polarizing figure, but it's just funny because if you, you know, if you went out with me wherever I go, um, even around America, not just here in L.A., um, oh, for a month, you'd, you'd never see anybody come up and go, you suck. I mean, that's happened in my whole life only a few times. The people who don't like you really just keep it to themselves. Right. Um, and the people who do like you come up to you. So it looks like everybody likes you. <laughs> well, that's good. I mean, I, I just I just thought, you know, yeah. just, you know, after religious, I just thought like, oh my God, I hope some crazy fundamentalist, oh, you know, you know oh. doesn't. But I, I mean, I have a bodyguard and I have, you know, we, we definitely, he's really smart about how we travel and take precautions. and But, um, you know, I think they have bigger fish to fry. I think they have, I think they have people they hate more. Yeah, especially Obama. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Obama, for taking the so much of the heat from the militia thinking people. Do you feel like I have this? I have this theory that because I feel. I mean, I, I'm sure every generation probably says like, "Oh, things are catastrophic. It's Armageddon. It's the end of the world." Right. I, I feel like because of the way the news portrays the world, because, you know, like news organizations have to get ratings, so they're going to put out yeah. shit up that's fear-mongering, and they're going to put out stuff that, like, they're going to show you the worst stuff because you'll watch it. And I, do you kind of feel like it kind of sort of creates this matrix of Armageddon that people feel like they watch the news and go, no, well, I, that's what the real world is like because it's all awful. I feel the opposite uh, because I think environmentally, I think that is what what's going on with the environment, I think, is unprecedented. Um I think we are approaching or perhaps have passed a tipping point mm -hmm. um, where we can't really get it back. And I think the media does the exact opposite. Uh, and the politicians, unfortunately, who, who understand this, the, the Obamas of the world, don't do a, a good enough job um, scaring people about this issue. Less people believe global warming is real, man-made, and happening than did five years ago. The climate bill, the the you know big one that they were going to pass in Congress, went down in flames this week because Obama never sold it. And the only thing people hear is from corporations and the liars they hire to put out bullshit on Fox News. That's what people hear about the environment. Is that that those are the people who are very vocal. Um, the deniers, the people who are saying it's a hoax and it's going to screw up the economy and all this bullshit. So, you know, I, I hope they're right, but we all know, because every fucking scientist in the world tells us, they're not right. Right. And I don't think that's... I don't think we've ever... We've had many cyclical kind of disasters that befall the human race and we all live through them. I don't know if we've ever had the accumulation of greenhouse gases and the kind of pollution we have on so many fronts, species dying, the oceans more acidic, the glaciers melting, you know, all that plastic in the ocean. You know, I, I just don't know how much cumulatively the planet can take. Right. I know that sounds hippie-ish, but no, I no, think no. it's also kind of true, you know. It's right. Facts, whatever they are. <laughs> I don't know. Who wants to get into... 
Oh, they probably thought the Black Death was pretty bad. Like, oh well, that's that's this isn't this isn't going well for but that humanity. That was just people. That was just people. You that know, was just people. This is something on a different scale. Well, you know, part of it I think has to do with the fact that um, people people don't necessarily fear things. I think they fear dread, and so I think that's why people are more afraid of things like terrorist attacks, plane crashes, because those are dreadful. And the same people will eat three double cheeseburgers in a and, day, and more people die of heart attacks, but they just don't think about it. Right. That. The other thing is is a slow moving disaster. Right. That they you know they have problems in their everyday lives. And it's just that, you know, it's, look, it's sunny today. I don't see, it doesn't seem to be hurting me right now. Right. You know, but the problem is that by the time it does get to the point where it's hurting you every time you go outside, then it's probably too, <laughs> then it's probably too late to fix it. Did I have you flesh know? on my arm yeah, when right. I went, when I left yeah. the house this morning? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's just bone now. <laughs> yeah. By that time, it probably is, is too late, but. You know, maybe we're wrong, and maybe it is uh, reversible. You know, we certainly have to hope. But uh, I'm kind of glad I'm not 20 and having to be on the cleanup committee in 30 years. Right. And that's another problem is I think people think, oh, it's a problem for our grandkids. Not really. It sort of is happening now. Right. You know, I mean, uh, wildfires, for example, in California. Um, I remember watching the 60 Minutes report on them. I mean, they're like 10 times bigger than they were a generation ago, the wildfires, and more frequent. But they're just enormous. I mean, mm-hmm. they just eat up giant hunks of the state. And I remember Steve Cross talking, Steve Croft talking to the fire chief firefighter guy, and he said, you know, we see people debating global warming. He said, there's nobody here on my staff who debates it. <laughs> you know, it's just a very different scenario than we witnessed earlier in our careers. Yeah, You know, it's just... Because it's drier, it's hotter. Um, there are certain species that you know beetles and so forth that thrive more because it's they're longer summers. So right. you know things that used to die out, insects and so forth that eat the eat the forest. And you know there's just a number of reasons why it's just um, gotten beyond our our ability to control it almost. I mean, oh, it's like a fucking Jenga game. Like yeah, the you one- know. <laughs> the wildfires out here are just really frightening. I live in a, I live in a high fire zone, like oh, yeah. up in the hills. And every time you drive home, there's this kind of smiling Smokey the Bear, and they change the the fire danger that day. And you know, like almost all summer, it always says like extreme in this yellow sign. And I just kind of feel like, oh yeah. So I mean, that, I mean that's burn. happening now. That's but you know, people are just adapters. You know, that's the human race. That's their nature. They just no matter what. Shit befalls them. They adopt, you know. Guys go to prison. They're not gay. All right, I'll suck cock. <laughs> you know, I just don't understand that mentality. They, but it's such people, a matter. Oh well, yeah, I'm here. I'm queer now. I get okay, up, yeah. whatever. I want to shower. Um, and that's you know, we'll we'll like they say in in fifty years there'll be no fish, and you know we'll we'll probably eat, you know, jellyfish and whatever whatever roaches whatever fucking was able to survive. Right. Are decimating the ecosystem we'll you know cover it in sugar and corn syrup and eat it you know i, I just assume we'll have synthetic food cubes by that point yeah, where everything it, right. is just so like, oh, like well this tastes like a thing that's yeah, a shame we don't have fish anymore but we don't you know my grandfather ate real fish what sushi restaurants <laughs> it'll be like a fucking thing in the yeah place. so um just kind of wrapping it up how do you uh What's your writing process? Do you do you actually sit down to write comedy, or does it just sort of do you just write it down as it comes to you? I'm I'm more of a as it comes to me. I'm a good uh, <laughs> I'm good at being vigilant at you know remembering. I'm not that great at like purposely. I remember when I started, that was another thing we were told, you know, because Bill Cosby told it to Jerry Seinfeld or something, and then we all heard, you know, you have to like. Sit down, first thing when you get up in the morning, I remember trying to do it, like first thing when your mind is sharp and you sit down with a blank yellow pad and you just write, you just start <laughs> writing, and I tried that, I was like, ugh, what a shitty fucking <laughs> It feels writer. awful, it's yeah. just like, it's like this Sisyphus this. sort of like yeah. pushing that. I guess it works for somebody, I don't know, I never thought Bill Cosby was funny, so I don't know why I was using his method. <laughs> Um, <laughs> oh, you weren't charmed by... I see, I loved himself. I loved the Bill Cosby storytelling never, thing. No, no, no. Never, you know... Who was your big Who was your big influence? I would say my influences were Robert Klein, mm-hmm. uh, like, as far as, like, that kind of stand-up. He's got a new special coming out, too. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah, it's already out. Is it good? Um, 
there are parts of it that are just great the old Klein mm -hmm. you know um, the, there's um, who else was my George Carlin yeah he was the other one like Klein and then there was Johnny Carson like more the old school not really a guy who did a stand up special but he did a monologue every night right so those were my I love Dean Martin too you know as far as like, like the kind of a loose laid back I haven't prepared a thing and I'm still charming and, <laughs> you know those were like the people who I really looked up to when I was a kid. Yeah, I was. I I thought I went back and I'm like, oh my god, those Dean Martin roasts were so funny. I'm gonna buy them. And then you watch them and you're like, oh my god, these are terrible. Like <laughs> that happens a lot. <laughs> they didn't yeah. Really hold up. <laughs> oh yeah, but I, I remember actually writing down like a I had like a on like my white loose leaf notebook paper like a hundred insults. I don't know what I was going to use them for, but I knew it was going to be a comedian, you know, that I got, that I stole from watching the Dean Martin roast. He came up from nothing and brought it with him. Yes, yes. You know, things like that. Yeah. She does the Dance of the Virgins from memory. <laughs> uh, the most puzzling one to me, because it was like... He's a household name. Garbage is a household name. <laughs> the what? The, like if you watch them, they're like they're horribly racist. Like when you watch, they're like oh, whenever they'd have Red Fox on one of Dean Martin's because Red Fox had white hair, and Red Fox or uh, Dean Martin said to Red Fox, his granddaddy used to pick cotton. Now he's got cotton on his head. Like, what does that even mean? I don't even know what that fucking means. I know what it means. Uh, I know. I guess like, Sammy's here. Someone's got to clean up afterwards. Just like oh, stuff like that. Wow. Where you're like, oh my! You just feel yourself wow. implode inside. Wow. Um, That's wrong. Well, I know. Uh, I know mm. you got to get going, and uh, and I do want to say. I mean, I can cut this out if, if we're not supposed to mention this, but I, it was. We hooked up again because we worked on a thing together, right? And it was super fun. And uh, and I'm glad we did because I always enjoyed coming on the show. Well, we hope uh, yes that we hope that pilot gets picked up. Yes, <laughs> yes, and then hopefully none of us will get replaced, and then it'll stay yes. on, and then we won't get replaced after the second season. Well, I'm not in it, so I can't be replaced. I'm the <laughs> producer this time. <laughs> That's a fun part. Yeah, cool and man. We have no uh, no desire to replace you. You were fantastic. Why? Well, I, I appreciate that. Uh, thanks for allowing right. me to your screening room. Sure. And uh, talk to you soon. All right. The end. <laughs> Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enhance your listening experience with Wondry Plus. Enjoy ad-free listening, exclusive content, binges, and more. Join Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or on Apple Podcasts.